out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Welcome to our wild world on this gorgeous uh, July day, Monday, July 8th. I don't know where you are, but here in the Rocky Mountains in a little town just outside of Aspen, Colorado, it's beautiful. We have a gorgeous sunny day. We're getting some of our rains and our wild world is looking fine. So today, um, we're going to highlight some of the news that's happening in wildlife conservation on the ground where communities are engaging in new models and considerations in living with their wild and non-human neighbors, along with some of the other projects that are going on around the world. We're going to focus on some of Wild Eyes' funded projects and their updates and the good news that's going on, along with some of the challenges they're still facing. And then, as I would said, other projects and programs that are making uh, incredible, tremendous strides in shaping uh, how the world, uh, how we, the, the people, live with wildlife and finding ways to create better relationships and uh, ways to help protect endangered species. So, as you're aware, uh, our wild world is uh, a part and parcel of Wild Eyes Foundation, the organization that I founded and run that is about wildlife conservation. And most of our focus uh, and grantee funding, that means money that we give to projects to accomplish conservation efforts on the ground, does take place in Africa. However, that does not mean that I am not interested or that we do not understand or focus and bring to light conservation issues that are happening all over the world. Because uh, Africa is one place and how we move forward in protecting our species and living with wildlife in our backyards from North America to ranching communities here in Colorado to um, places such as India or China or um, even Russia, other wildlife areas around the world is important to how we all work together and move in a direction that creates a living web of life that we call Earth. So I'm going to start with one of our projects that's a very critical project, and we've been supporting it uh, since... 
2009, and that is the Condition Taste Aversion Project that we're implementing with African lions. So, to to start with, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what Condition Taste Aversion is. It originally became noticed when people who had undergone cancer radiation therapy went to and and survived this and uh, had to go back into their lives. What scientists and doctors found out is as they would go back to eating their normal diets, as a result of the uh, radiation meds, food tasted differently. So the foods that people enjoyed, their favorite foods, when they would eat it, the side effects of the medication would make them ill, even though eating their favorite foods. Thus, the mind plays interesting tricks on us. It became uh, related that the food that was being eaten is what was making someone sick. And we've all had this, uh, this, this experience, this hardwired mammalian response to eating some, to keep ourselves from eating something toxic or that is poison. For some of us, it's that, uh, little burrito in the convenience store. For some of us, it's alcohol. That was my condition, taste aversion. I can't see, smell, or touch tequila anymore. And, uh, for other people, it's that chicken sandwich or tuna sandwich. Uh, you ate it. You got sick, and now you can't look at, see, smell, or even think about eating that piece of food again. Well, what we discovered through uh, 30 years of research is that not just human mammals, but all mammals have this response to protecting themselves from eating something toxic. They eat it once, they get sick, and they say, I will not eat that again. So in terms of wildlife conservation and condition taste aversion, uh, the researchers began uh, working with this on California gray wolves that were getting into chickens or getting into sheep or getting into cows as the wolf reintroduction program took off. And we all are aware that outside of Yellowstone National Park, uh, I've done a couple episodes that once the wolves stray out of the park and get into livestock, then the wolves are killed. So our goal and, and the goal of condition taste aversion is to find a way to mitigate this wildlife livestock human conflict uh, to protect the wildlife, to protect the, the livestock, and to help people understand that there are other avenues besides lethal methods to control the livestock predator conflict. So it was um, implemented on California gray wolves, and it worked. Uh, we have several videos and a lot of research, and you can look it up through Conditioned Taste Aversion on the web and learn more uh, by the lead scientist, Dr. Lowell Nichols. Nichols. Nicholas, excuse me, and uh, Lowell Nicholas is the mentor for our grantee, uh, Bill Given, who is also an associate researcher and biologist at the Denver Zoo. So Bill approached Wild Eyes with this concept of, hey, uh, since conditioned taste aversion, otherwise known as CTA, is effective on wolves, it's also effective on ravens, uh, Australian quolls, and we also implemented it with Bill and our current protocol on the, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Mexican Wolf Recovery Program, where I happened to witness firsthand just how well this procedure works, uh, firsthand outside of my tequila experience, that is. So uh, what's important about this is, in terms of the African line 
is that we are losing our lions. Fifty years ago, we had 450,000 lions across their natural wild range states in Africa. There is still a small population in Asia, but uh, they are not facing quite the same livestock issues as we're facing in Africa or even here in the U.S. with mountain lions and uh, sheep, cattle, and most uh, prominently uh, desert bighorn sheep as the desert bighorn sheep projects for reintroduction and uh, bringing up that population goes into full swing. Uh, mountain lions are not protected. Desert big torn sheep are. So when we have a mountain lion killing a sheep, well, we've got a problem in terms of conservation. So to get back to African lions, as I said, 450,000 years ago, excuse me, 50 years ago, we had 450,000 lions. Uh, sorry about that little glitch. Um, and today we have less than 23,000 across their former range. Uh, it is also known that approximately 2,600 of those are male lions. So that brings in a lot of issues in terms of trophy hunting and the social structure and status of the pride group and what happens when you kill a lion, whether it be a female and the lioness and what happens to her cubs and the pride structure, or when you kill a male lion for trophy hunting and what that does not only to the pride structure and the rest of the family, but how that works with every other lion pride in the nearby area or overlapping territories. It's very, very disruptive to remove one lion, and especially the male, of a functioning pride and what that does to reproductive values, um, ability, and social structure all over. So we figured out that if we could... Uh, bait and use a chemical, a, non a non-poisonous chemical, something that would just make the lions a bit upset, tummy troubles, then perhaps they would think twice about eating a cow again. So the project that Bill Given brought to me was to uh, put in a protocol on a set or a population of captive wild lions and by that I mean they are wild they are not domesticated they are not tame they have been removed from cattle country for killing cows and in essence rescued but uh, that creates another problem in a growing population and what can you do with wild captive lions other than a tourist attraction the amount of food it does take to keep them alive and what we really need is wild lions, but we can't have wild lions killing cows. It's an economic disaster for the people who are also trying to survive in harsh areas and exactly where the lions are and having their problems. And cattle are is an easy prey. So if we could take beef from a cow and mix it with a chemical chemical called thiabenazole, which is tasteless and odorless and has very um, mild up tummy upsetting effects, get the lion to eat it, would the lion then think and make the connection that eating the inside of the cow related to smelling, seeing, and looking at the outside of the cow as something that it should not eat? Well, lo and behold, it works. So in 2010, we implemented the first captive trials in Botswana with the uh, approval of the Botswana government so that we could do a trial and a protocol to show them how this works. And it worked beautifully and I was able to be there in person and witness this. And it was a stunning, stunning um 
transformation. Uh, we fed the, the lions beef baits, which were wrapped in fresh cow. So it smelled like cow. It looked like cow. It had cow fur. Uh, they had to go through the process of chewing through this cow to, uh, cow bait. It wasn't a whole cow, um, to get to the meat inside. And which they did. And then after a little while, they sort of went down and you could tell they weren't feeling so good. And then the follow up for the trial is to give them another beef bait and see if they'll eat it. And sure enough, they wouldn't. They, and this is interesting because captive lions, A, they, um, trust their food source, that of their keepers, that their keepers are not going to give them bad food. So here we were as keepers, so to speak, giving them bad food. So they had a bit of a conflict in saying, well, you know, I've got to eat this because there's nothing else I can eat, but um, it's going to make me sick. So it was a prime uh, research ability and data collection to see what happens in this scenario. And it worked. Uh, seven lions were successfully uh, treated with conditioned taste aversion to the point that they would no longer eat beef bait. So um, you may be wondering, so what do you feed them? Well, um, that poor ubiquitous donkey, uh, when donkeys um, get old or donkey markets are uh, a good source of providing not only beasts of burden, but food for those animals that need to eat, those carnivorous animals that need to eat meat, but will not create a conflict with uh, valuable economic livestock. So uh, donkey was the preferred food to test that the lions would still eat, that everything was okay, and they had no problem with that. The difficulty with captive lion uh, trials is this very same thing. They trust their keepers. They trust their food source. They are unable in an enclosed area to hunt or have a food choice. So they were, so that works for and against us. They had to eat the beef. They had no other choice. They couldn't eat the beef and there was no other food to be had. So the important thing was as, as to find out that the trials worked is to see what this would, what would happen in a wild scenario where lions have a choice. There is other food available. And if once they've been treated with the bad cow, will they go and find good food? Well, that's what we're going to find out right now. Uh, our Botswana trials have begun. We have the team fully in place. We have three areas with the blessing of the uh, Department of Wildlife and National Parks of Botswana and the wildlife departments and the, the government to say, um, first off, they've admitted that there is a huge lion prob problem in livestock areas, and that's around the Central Kalahari Game Reserve, where all around that and to the north are cattle farming uh, ranches. And we're talking cattle farming on a huge scale. Uh, where they do not have the concentrated food lots or fenced areas like we do. This is major open range, so it's similar to dealing with wolves and or mountain lions, where you can't keep on top of every cow all the time. And it's once or twice a year where you go round up the beef and uh, bring it into uh, the ranch for slaughter and moving through the um, the system to get it from a cow to your table. So in between that, lions are eating cows and it can cause um, up to, for a rancher, $300,000 worth of economic loss. That's nothing to sneeze at. So as much as we love our lions 
And as much as uh, we're also looking at ways of shifting our planetary nutrient system to eating less beef, beef is not going away. Um, people are going to continue eating beef, and it is a valuable economic resource. So to protect wildlife, we do need to find a way to make this work so that we don't have to lose our carnivores in retaliation for eating a cow. As uh, a lion in is one of the big five and is um, quite a tourist attraction, if we didn't have the lion for visitors from elsewhere to visit in its natural habitat, there would be a huge uh, economic loss through tourism. So this is an important step forward and uh, the new era that we're facing and uh, the new paradigm that we're going to have to find and put into place to live with wildlife. Um, on, a, on a larger scale, not the odd fox or coyote or mountain lion that comes through your yard. Even though that may be a devastating experience, we're talking on a larger scale of saving a species. So in 2011, we began the CTA trials on the captive wild populations, which worked great. And uh, now, as of this month, actually it started in uh January and February that we got the okay from the Department of Wildlife in Botswana to move ahead with uh, collaring 10 wild lions. Five of these lions, both male and female, would be the control group. That means they would not be tested. They would be collared and released and left alone in their um, area or translocated to see if they would go back to eating cows or if they would work on uh, finding their natural prey. The other five lions will be the condition taste aversion uh, tested lions that will be given the thiobenazole and translocated and followed to see if they learn to stay away from cows or if they go back and try and find cows or re-enter the area that they were translocated from. So the team has made uh, great strides in building positive partnerships for the investments both through um, other funding and on the ground between the communities, the ranchers, and the Department of Wildlife. This is a huge Huge progressive step forward compared to where we were three years ago. So it looks like we're ready for a break. If you'd like to call in and ask any questions, you can call in at 1-866-472-5788 or send me an email at wildize at wildeyes.org. Please visit our website, wildeyes.org, to learn more about these projects and the updates and some more background if you're interested. And I look forward to hearing from you and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. 
She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. We're filling you in today on some of the great updates that uh, not only Wild Eyes' grantees and projects, uh, the strides they're making, but other uh, wonderful strides towards this paradigm shift I've been talking about, about how people and wildlife are going to live together uh, as our planet moves forward in a very changed way from, let's say, 50 years ago. So right before the break, I was talking about our uh, big project, uh Condition taste aversion, which is helping lions to, I guess, as our as our principal investigator Bill Given puts it, take beef off the menu. So some of you may be saying, "Well, what's so wrong about eating a cow?" We eat them when we eat them a lot of them. So right there is the conundrum: the cows are for us people. The cows are not for the wildlife. Cows are a domesticated species and they are easy prey as they are not wild and they really don't have much of that what we call ecology of fear. They're, they don't have the wild instincts to deal with carnivores. They're kind of just sort of sitting there and they're very expensive to feed. They take a lot of land and it's a very um, high-end market and a lot of economic value that people survive on. Whereas the lion, if you're a cattle rancher, you're not having a tourist facility. The lions are a a problem. So how are we going to live with that? Condition taste aversion seems to be a very elegant and workable solution that does not change anything about the lion's pride structure, does not change anything about the lion's behavior, other than it no longer likes cows. So with our... um, project that's going on right now uh, and what I talked about before the break, we are collaring 10 lions, 5 of a control group and 5 that will be condition, condition taste aversion. We've already um, been able to con- 
collar one control lion, a prime male who was relocated from the cattle area um, outside the CKGR, that's the Central Kalahari Game Reserve, to within the reserve. The team followed up, but unfortunately, uh, through the data collected from the collar, the lion had not moved for four days after his translocation and was uh, presumed dead after just one month. Um, finding this lion proved that, and it's the, but it's also the kind of data that we need to evaluate the translocation program of CTA impacts. Lions are very, very difficult to translocating. To translocate, we're talking about an apex predator in its territory. So you've got lion prides uh, dispersed throughout any given territory in a range state where lions naturally live. So when a lion dies, as I talked about earlier, through trophy hunting, natural death, or you put in a new lion, you're going to have some territorial wars. You've got to find a way to get one predator to exist with another group of predators, the same species, competing for the same resources, and... Um, trying to make a living through the pride structure area and prey ratio in competition from other carnivores and other lions it's sort of like when one of us has to pick up and move our entire world into a new place if we change our social status or marriage status or go off to college or where we enter a new job profession there are a lot of details to work out and how to make the best of the situation to maximize um, all your prospects and all and, and your future so that you get along and you get along with all your neighbors. That's not so easy to do with lions, uh, especially wild lions. Uh, moving lions into an area where there is a vacuum or a lack of lions, an empty habitat that is suitable for them, uh, is, is very workable. And that is the highlight or the um, primary goal is to find a habitat where you can move and create a pride of lions, which is some of the work that one of our grantees, uh, Tony Fitzjohn, is working on up in Cora in northern Kenya on the other side of the continent to bring lions back. He was George Adamson's protege who was uh, born free. Uh, you may remember the film Born Free or Walking with Lions or even the YouTube sensation Christian the Lion. All these lions were typically captive bred used in the film industry, uh, those to make the film Born Free. And then what are you going to do them with them now that they're film career is over. They're in Africa. Can you release them into the wild or are they going to have to stay captive and in sanctuary for the rest of their lives? So George Adamson and Tony Fitzjohn went about rehabilita rehabilitating lions to put them back into the wild. They did not have the ability to use such a program as conditioned taste aversion. So as we move forward with the revitalization of Cora and lions there in the Meru area, of Kenya, we are going to, we are certainly considering with KWS and Tony Fitzjohn and the George Adamson Wildlife Trust implementing condition taste aversion on a viable captive pride to be released in the wild so that they do not begin eating the livestock in the villages that are nearby. On the upside, where Cora is in Kenya is not nearly as human populated as the cattle ranches and cattle uh, populations are in Botswana. So there 
therefore Botswana is our prime target to start with. The other difficulty with lions is you have to treat each one. Treating a young male within the pride and the young cubs and the, the lionesses is one thing. Uh, hopefully what we'll find out through the next three to five years of this study is whether once a lioness has been uh, averted to beef, will she then no longer use that as an example for her cubs so that when her cubs grow up, they will not target beef. But then you have the problem of the males. The males leave the pride and go to become nomads for three to four years as they grow up and learn how to be lions to the point where they can take over a pride. So it's these young nomadic males that we do definitely want to condition taste aversion while they're still young enough and with the pride so that hopefully when they go nomad, they will not choose cows to eat. And hopefully when they go into their new pride structure, if we can also treat other prides in the area, then we're creating a wonderful line, so to speak, a lion line of many lions who do not choose to eat beef. So this is all still very new. It's incredibly exciting. We know it works. We just don't know how well it works with African lions in the wild. So stay tuned to Wild Eyes Foundation. Uh, we should have some really fascinating results in the next couple of months. And hopefully by October, November, I'll be headed over there to see one of the uh, condition taste aversion uh, trials being implemented in one of the four areas areas that we're working in. So this is very, very exciting. This also takes a lot of money um, to do this kind of thing. So uh, when you hear about lion conservation or you go to our webpage and visit what we're doing and you feel motivated and want to help, we can always make use of your donation for these critical projects and you'll know exactly where your money's going and you can always find out exactly what's going on. And that's another part of this uh, show and our episodes is to keep our donors and supporters and all interested people up to date on what's going on in wild wildlife conservation for critical species uh, which are facing big challenges over the next few years. Lions are just one of them. So um, with the lead researcher uh, Bill Given who lives here in the U.S. along with the lead researcher and principal investigator on the ground in Botswana, we have a full team of CTA uh, staff and team members which are local to Botswana and the other important part of any project that for its sustainability is that the knowledge can be transferred. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in one of my uh, episodes talking about language and reading and transfer of knowledge. In conservation issues this becomes an imperative. Uh, without the ability to understand the data, be able to put together the research, the proposals, the protocol, follow through and train on the ground people to take over this project, then we don't really get that much farther. So your funding, your support, all helps to provide the critical needs to make these projects work. As I've always said, wildlife itself doesn't need money. It doesn't have a pocket, doesn't need to go to the store. What it does need is room, space to live its life, 
And as we've been talking about, freedom from harm, if you want to go that direction, or at least the opportunity to live out their lives in the wild as they have, as opposed to constant conflict with us. Uh, that's my personal opinion, and that is what I talk about as the changing paradigm of how we're going to live with wildlife as our world moves forward with a lot of rapid changes, uh, climate change, habitat loss, and uh, economic uh, stressors and poverty and disease and all these issues and challenges that we're all going to be facing over the next many years. It is very positive what can be done. So I'm trying today to let you know all the good things that are going on so that perhaps next time you watch those wonderful wildlife nature shows and you're watching a lion pride and what's going on or any other animal that you have a little bit better idea of what goes on behind the camera and when the camera is not on and during the daily lives of these animals rather than the daily lives of just the people. So now I'm going to move on to another incredible project Wild Eyes uh, supports, and that's the Caracal Biodiversity Center. They also function and work in Botswana. We've had um, Dr. Kathy Alexander and her husband and co-director and co-founder of Caracal on our radio show a couple of times, and so you can go look up their previous episodes. Fascinating people. Uh, Kathy is a Ph.D. Uh, at Virginia Tech University, and she is also a wildlife veterinarian who works with the Botswana Department of Wildlife, as does Mark. Mark is a field biologist, zoologist, and has been in the field his entire life, being born in uh, Zambia, and Kathy was born in South Africa. So Wild Eyes has funded uh, over the past several years, I think since 2008, uh, funding for their field lab and education center, uh, which was a small little place uh, just outside Kasani in the northern area of Botswana, just on the border with Zimbabwe. And uh, by funding this education center and field lab, a bio level hazard, a biohazard level two field lab, which means they can deal with um, contagious uh, bacteria, not um, level four or five bacterias like Ebola, but they can deal with E. coli and uh, influenza and that kind of thing. And they implemented a mongoose study to understand. Uh, vector transmission of diseases, tuberculosis in particular at that point. After several years of research, they found out uh, that the mongoose population is a vector source of transmitting TB both through two people and through two other wildlife such as elephants. But what we found out and what we thought were slightly different. We thought the TB was coming through uh, open garbage pits or pit latrines and waste from people. Um, it turned out to be not quite what we thought, but the mongoose are certainly a vector, and they are carrying a new strain of tuberculosis that has since been named after Dr. Kathy Alexander. So that's exciting for the conservationist side and for the understanding and the research and the data side. So what does it mean for the mongoose? That study continues, and it has um, gone on to understand that even those mongoose that do not live within human settlements have... Uh, 
become highly resistant to a wide variety of antibiotics. So what does this mean? That means even where people are not living, resistance to antibiotics that we are using in our food chain through our waste and being passed through vector resources such as mongoose, elephant, people, cattle, it is changing our landscape out there. It is changing how wildlife responds to man-made issues uh, and, and chemicals such as antibiotics. And what does that mean for people? If uh, a pandemic or a widespread uh, outbreak should happen, uh, not only will the wildlife be affected, but people will be affected as the antibiotics or these different chemical compounds make their way through the system. So that goes back a little bit to what I talked about uh, last week in terms of the book Zubiquity and understanding uh, how veterinary medicine and human medicine can work together and how we're changing the very core structure of our planet through the use of chemicals such as antibiotics to DDT, to um, pesticides, to what we feed our chickens, what we feed our cattle, what we feed our food sources and what we're using on our non-meat sources. They are having an effect on everything around us, including us. So I realize that's a lot wrapped together, but this is what's important about the projects and discovering um, and researching wildlife conservation is the amount of tremendous input and uh, information that we gather through this research that is not only beneficial to protecting wildlife species, but will be uh, beneficial to protecting us as well. As I've said many times, we are one huge interconnected web. And as uh, it was attributed to an Indian chief, as he had said, what we do to the web, we do to ourselves. And with our technology and our ability and our science today that has made such leaps and strides over the past 50 years, we are now able to learn so much more about the living functions that we live with, that we are a part of and that we depend upon. Um, so again, watch Nova. Um, there is a fabulous show in there called Earth from Space, which puts together many years of scientific data and uh, computer graphic imaging that highlights just what the web Earth is. Um, I could go into a lot of detail explaining how amazing and astonished I was watching this show, but I just suggest you sit down and watch it. Nova, Earth from Space, and you'll get a fabulous idea from the macro level to the micro to the cosmic level of just what an interconnected web of life we live on in this little blue ball in space. So um, I'd also like to highlight that Dr. Kathleen Alexander of Caracal Biodiversity Center was selected as one of three African regional experts by the World Health Organization and the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, the Secretariat, to participate in a workshop in Mozambique, presenting to the national health and biodiversity experts from various African countries on integrating health and biodiversity into policy and planning. This is a huge step. It's another um, step along that paradigm shift to separate, uh, to bringing together what we have typically separated, the human and wildlife communities and uh, the environmental communities. Once again, it's all interconnected. So as we look toward our public health, 
on a global scale and create policy and plan for this, the objective here is to contribute to the implementation of the Convention on Biological Diversity and the WHO in the African region by providing a forum to national health and environment biodiversity experts from uh, the African parties to the um, conservation-based demands on actions to be taken in their respective countries. This is huge, people, absolutely huge. Um, it just fills me with awe and amazement that as we move forward and we um, fund projects such as Caracal or Condition Taste Aversion or any one of our other grantees, these are critical steps that are being taken that will change how we live and how we function not only as human beings but once again how we live on this earth and create a survival in what in a future that's looking very different than it did 50 years ago and some more great steps by another one of our uh, grantee projects um, I'll come back to that one right after the break and uh, meantime if you've got something to say or you have a question or a comment give me a call at one 472 5788 or drop me an email at wildize at wildeyes.org um, and visit our website www.wildeyes.org and um, check us out the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry our biodiversity crumbles wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems the wild effect it's in our hands Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're following up on good news and tremendous strides are uh, projects, the ones, and by that I mean the projects that Wild Eyes funds with our donor support, uh, what's happening on the ground and in the field. One of our other grantees, the Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust, which was previous, previously known as Wild Horizons Wildlife Trust, they did a name change. Uh, they operate in the Victoria Falls National Park in Zimbabwe, just across the border from Caracal Biodiversity Center. So there's a lot of overlap here. Although the projects are completely separate, they are both doing disease monitoring and how that affects different animal populations and how that crosses over into affecting human populations. In Zimbabwe, they are um, understanding the transmission of uh, diseases through buffalo and cattle and how that gets into the human population and back again into the wild population. So Wild Eyes funded, uh, again, similar to uh, Caracal, the building and construction of a lab and the ability to undergo field tests of testing uh, buffalo for tuberculosis and to see where that's moving throughout the, the landscape and if there are any crossovers and where it might be popping up in human populations. So once again, this brings back to the whole concept of zubiquity and my previous episode in understanding both human disease and wildlife disease and the parallels between the two where we may be passing on diseases into the wild population as our population numbers grow as climate change affects prey species and how animals move through their habitat and uh, water and drain, uh, excuse me, as it affects water, the availability of water and rainfall, that changes the habitat and the landscape and forces animals to move or die and it also changes uh, the, the food and the availability for people. So we're at a really critical point in uh, where we are as a world today in understanding the science we've put into effect over the last 50, 25 years. We're now getting incredible amounts of data uh, from this research that we can effectively put into planning and policy to move forward and live better uh, with each other. Uh, perhaps these crossovers and these parallels will help further provide cures or planning to have people and wildlife live together without transmissions and reduce human-wildlife conflict. And human-wildlife conflict isn't always about animals eating, um, or excuse, you know, poaching, uh, people killing animals. Human-wildlife conflict has the other side where wildlife uh, imp- imposes problems onto people. Uh, An elephant can come through your garden in one night and destroy your entire livelihood. Everything you needed for the next year or two to survive, all gone in a night. That is human-wildlife conflict. 
uh, a cow eating your your cow, uh, excuse me, a lion eating your cow, affecting your economic bottom line uh, and your ability to survive, whether it's small scale, the pastoralist herder, or large scale, it's still a conflict. Um, there is, of course, the flip side, uh, the conflict of people onto wildlife, poaching for ivory, poaching for rhino horns, poaching for lion tiger bones or bear gallbladder. But it all works together, and that's what conservation is about. That truly is the meaning of a conservation mindset, finding ways that we do not continue to disrupt the web that is is the base and the foundation for all survival of all life on earth. Uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to lose some species. We already have. Um, extinctions happen all the time, but it's a balance of how quickly and how fast are extinctions happening today uh, versus 50 years ago and what is causing that. And you're all familiar with there's several arguments. It's people and our impact on the climate causing climate change and warming temperatures. But also there's the argument that climate is not static, that it does change. We are we have continuously through uh, the beginning of Earth gone through a wide variety of uh climatology and uh, temperatures, glaciers, and and uh, extinctions, the dinosaurs for one. But uh, the research from that helps us understand the broad brushstrokes of what's going on today. But as things are happening at such a rapid rate today over the past 50 years, we have to find a way and we are finding ways to understand what is happening so that we can go about creating solutions. And that takes time. Conservation takes time and it takes funding. And Wild Eyes is uh, a small drop in the ocean when it comes to targeting funding, your support to specific projects. And we go about finding these projects in terms of how they link together to create a broader picture, such as the Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust, uh, disease studies and laboratory in combination with understanding what's happening in Botswana, in combination with understanding what's happening in South Africa and what's happening over in East Africa. All of these things and what's happening is important so that we can take strides forward. This month, the uh, Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust will be assisting the Vets for Animal Welfare Zimbabwe in providing free vaccination campaigns to dogs and cats in Victoria Falls. Uh, the aim of this is to make it an annual ca campaign to help decrease the transmission of diseases in cats and dogs, which can also be fatal, not only to the cats and dogs, but as happened in the Serengeti many years ago in the 90s, uh, canine distemper uh, moved into the wild lion population, killing off the majority of the lions in the northern part of the Serengeti. This was transferred. It took them two years to figure out how this happened. Once again, you can go to the web and find canine distemper and lions in Serengeti as your keyword search. And there are some really horrendous videos to watch if that's what you need to see, but it basically uh, created seizures in the lions and nobody could figure out why. So after many lion experts got together and studied and got the data and uh, ne necropsies and understanding what was happening biologically and physiologically to the lions, they finally figured out it was canine distemper, which we never knew would affect a lion. And how it was being transmitted was the local dogs the village dogs would get canine distemper as there is no inoculation 
uh, program for it. There's no spay and neutering programs. Um, so that's why this is important for Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust to take this on because as the dogs or the cats would come down with canine distemper and die, the villagers would just toss them outside the village boundary. Well, in a wildlife area where you have carnivores and scavengers that are looking for anything to eat, uh, the hyenas would come in and take these dogs and feed on them. Rabies and canine distemper are transmitted through saliva. You need to either be bitten or uh, take in some sort of fluid, infected fluid. So the hyenas would then, after eating an infected dog or cat, would go feed on a wild kill, such as um, a buffalo or um, an impala, and transfer this infection to the kill. Then the lions, who would either originally kill or are sometimes scavengers themselves, would come in and feed where the hyenas fed. They picked up the disease. Then it just traveled through the lion population like wildfire, as the lion prides would uh, feed on these kills, and it devastated the lion population. So then they went about trying to come up with a canine distemper inoculation for lions, which was very difficult, somewhat successful. And then they figured, okay, let's also do it to wild dogs who were also showing signs of the same diseases. Well, that didn't work because wild dogs are very, very different than domestic dogs. And that ended up from a good position starting point to killing a lot of wild dogs. So every time we learn something and every time we make a mistake, we are learning. And it's that learning that will help us move forward and understand what we have to do to protect not only ourselves, but protect uh, the wildlife we live with, whether it be Africa, where the, uh, the last remaining large landscapes exist to hold unique wildlife. That is what is so fascinating and spectacular and particular about Africa compared to other uh, continents and where wildlife lives elsewhere on the world. In the world, what we're hoping is that uh, places in Africa where these species exist in numbers where they don't exist anywhere else outside of captivity does do not have to make the same mistakes and can benefit from the research that everyone has gathered over the past 50 years and put it into policy and planning and uh, help people and transfer this knowledge. So um, other things that Victoria Wildlife uh, excuse me, Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust is working on, is they're going to be collaborating with the Oxford Wild Crew Huangi Lion Research Project to conduct lion and leopard research in Kazuma and Victoria Falls National Parks. The goal of this project is to determine the lion and leopard movements across the different land use types, as well as across international boundaries, taking into consideration the recently established Kavango-Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area. The findings will play a critical role in enhancing the long-term sustainability of the regional lion population. The aim uh, is also to identify the corridors these animals use, as well as evaluate other factors such as the established prey base and current numbers of both lions and leopards. This is a tremendous stride. 
We uh, have an understanding of how many lions are left globally, as I had said earlier, in their range states and former uh, wild range, and how they have declined tremendously by two-thirds, more than two-thirds, over the last 25 years, um, 50 to 25 years. So those that are left, we have to um, start working hard to see how we can protect them. So getting a baseline of numbers of lion populations, where they live, in what countries, in what areas, what is their suitable habitat, where the crossovers and where the conflicts are, will help us create incredible planning and policies that will uh, differentiate and protect both lions and people without losing um, this incredible species. I mean, can you imagine going to Africa to see what could be the big two if we lose our lions, if we lose our elephants, and we lose our rhinos. What is left is the Cape buffalo, which is the disease transmitter of tuberculosis. And then uh, we have the cheetah and the leopard. So leopards are very adaptable. We don't have any real studies uh, across the sub-Saharan Africa where leopards are and how many there there are. They're a highly um, solitary animal and very adaptable. So getting an idea of in, in one particular area in Victoria Falls uh, of leopard numbers and lion numbers will be incredibly beneficial for forward plans. Uh, it looks like we're going to be heading up to another break here uh, shortly. So until um, we get there, uh, Victoria Falls Wildlife Trust is also highly involved in children's conservation courses uh, in pri- for children in primary school from the rural areas near Victoria Falls. And the, uh, the course selected 20 students interested in conservation um, and interaction and activity. And throughout the week, children had the opportunity to learn about everything from animal identification to preventing wildlife conflict in their homes. And uh, they were joined by professionals from the Trust and other wildlife biologists, zoologists, and government officials. And um, they were all engaged in leading in-depth discussions on the merits of how important wildlife is to every person, directly or indirectly, that lives in that area. Once again, this is a huge step forward. Uh, the, the beginning of a new era and a paradigm shift of living with wildlife on our, our planet. So uh, I'd like to thank you very much. It's been another great day. And uh, thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you next week on Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.